0: You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, how are we doing? Well, this is pretty cool. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pretty excited we get to be at TW tonight. First time ever in the history of Overflow that we're on campus at TW. So uh, I just want to say thanks to uh, TW volleyball, T-Dub basketball, T-Dub gymnastics for letting us use their home court tonight. Um, Isn't this a great facility? Those of you, uh, maybe, how many, uh, okay, so I know we're going to be on campus at UNT next week, Uh, so, okay, so how many, how many UNT people do we have here tonight? Let me hear you. Man, that is awesome. How many of you, this is your first time to be on T-Dub's campus tonight? (laughs) Very cool. How many T-Dubbers we got here tonight? Okay. UNT next week is your week to be loud. Uh, look, I, I love this campus so much. Um, it's a really unique campus in, in so many ways. Uh, I mean, first of all, y'all have the coolest president slash chancellor uh, I think I've ever met, Dr. Phaeton. She's so cool. From Belgium. Did you know that? Belgium? I, I stutter. Belgium, not Belgium-um. Uh, and uh, I found this out the other day. So she has bicycled through Vietnam. Did you know that? Like, she's awesome. Uh, I, I feel like she would be really fun to, like, if, you know, people ask the question, three people that you could have dinner with, I feel like she might be, she might make the cut for me just so I could hear some stories from bicycling through Vietnam. This place is really unique. Um, it goes far beyond just having a cool president, but, uh, I mean, probably the best nursing school ever in the history of mankind. Any nursing students or pre-nursing, yeah. OT, PT, uh, a lot of that in here. I know, I know there's, there's a really good music therapy program here. We've had a lot of music therapy students in our, uh, in our ministry through the years. I had one, she was actually uh, on staff for me um, a couple of years ago. She was, uh, she was my uh, ministry assistant and uh, music therapy, and I don't know if she had like another music major or minor going on in there, but she, uh, she played the flute and uh, she worked for, for me for two years. And uh, her senior year, she was like, hey, would you come to my uh, uh, senior recital, uh, flute recital? And I'm like thinking, oh, crud, crud, like I really flute concert. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know what you picture when you think of flute. Does anybody here play the flute? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Well, hey, (laughs) give me a second, okay? So yeah, she played the flute, and I'm thinking, yes, I'll go to your flute recital. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so it was over at Margo Jones, and uh, I go in there, and I, I sit down, and I brought some other students with me, and she comes out there with this flute, and I'm thinking she's just going to be like, doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo, all alright thanks, done, peace out. No, she was like shredding that thing, and uh, it was kind of one of those moments at the end, I thought she was going to start kicking over speakers and then just like drop the flute and, flute, flute, and walk off the stage. It was awesome. Unique campus uh, uh, for, for the, the reason that so many uh, cool majors on this campus, great people on this campus, um, incredible sports teams, soccer, do you know the soccer? Your soccer team is number 25 in the nation right now, currently undefeated, uh, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Um, Cool, don't get excited about that, that's fine. Um, uh, volleyball, softball, basketball, great programs. Uh, d- the gymnastics team here has nine national championships. Yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, so I, I will say this, as much as this campus is unique and, you know, I'm, I'm saying some positive things about the campus, I have to say this, I literally had one of the worst days of my life ever last year in the DGL building over there. Um, so I get to, I get the privilege of, <laughs> y'all know what I'm talking about. I get the privilege of getting to work, uh, with the basketball team here. kind of in a, in a, I don't know. I just, they let me practice with them every once in a while and hang out with them. So whatever. Uh, so last year and coach Gilson and, and coach uh, Bowerman for gymnastics and basketball over here, uh, coach Gilson talked me in, so I, I would do some of their off season workouts with them last year. And, uh, most of that was just out on the soccer field, running lines and stuff, which was terrible by the way. Uh, but she talked me in one day. She was like, hey, so the team's going to do a workout over at the gymnastics facility uh, tomorrow. Uh, Why don't you come? One of the gymnastics coaches is going to lead us through the workout, and I'm thinking, yeah, that'll be easy. I mean, one, you know, which pause, okay, I don't know if we have gymnasts here tonight. Uh, I didn't know much about, okay, we do, we do. I'm, hold hold on, hold on there. So I didn't know much about gymnastics going into this last year until uh, my wife and I started, not my wife at the time, but my wife and I started hanging out with the uh, gymnastics team and coming to some of the gymnastics meet, meets, and uh, wow, like, uh, blew my mind, put a whole new world view in my mind of, like, muscle and strength and just clear competitiveness and, like, grr, I don't even know what a word to put to it, but, like, they're, they're crazy. They do crazy stuff. So I didn't know that going into this workout. I'm thinking gymnastics. Yeah. And plus, you know, I played sports in college. It was a while ago, uh, but I'm still in shape. I'm young and, youngish and spry, and... Uh, <laughs> So I'm thinking, yeah, I can do this. Plus, you know, I'm I'm gonna work out with you know the girls' basketball team, and it'll be fine. And so, uh, and it's a gymnastics coach putting us through this workout. So I'm like, no big deal. What she didn't tell me was this gymnastics coach. Her name's Courtney. Uh, is a is a uh, uh, she was on the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team in 2004. So she's an Olympian, so she's a freak of nature. And um, she was gonna be leading us through the workout, doing everything with us. So we started on those, those bikes, uh, spin bikes. I don't know if you've ever done one of those. Uh, they're terrible. And uh, then after we did that for like an hour, which by the way, Courtney, she's doing this the whole time with us, harder than any of us are doing it. And I'm like in the back, thankfully, because nobody could see my facial expressions uh, and the amount of sweat coming out of my body. Uh, <clears throat> after we finished this like 45 minute uh, spin bike workout, she's like, all right, and I'm thinking, yes, we're done. She goes, come over to the floor, which is the floor where they kind of practice their, what do you call that, floor routines. And uh, <laughs> she puts us through a whole nother horrible workout that was harder than the first one. And uh, so basically, I almost died twice over in the DJL building last year. Now, what I'm not telling you is, Courtney, the one leading us through this, uh, she was about 32 weeks pregnant at the time and uh, doing it harder than all of us. I think she had uh, about two more weeks and then she, she, she gave birth to the baby. Can you imagine being that baby in there? <laughs> Seriously, I thought about that. Like, what in the world is going on inside? Like, how is, what is going on with that baby? Is he getting like wrapped up in the umbilical cord? You know, like as she's spinning on that bike and just like bouncing around. It may have been the coolest experience ever. I don't know. But anyways, unique camps. I love this place. Uh, you know, here's the other thing. Being here for a few years, what I've noticed is, uh, as unique as this campus is, uh, it is also uh, a lot like any other college campus that I've been on. Over the past few years, I've had a lot of opportunities to meet so many of you and students who've graduated before you and, uh, and counsel with you. And, you know, it's interesting, just like on any other college campus, there's so many students who are going through all these highs and lows, experiencing all these great experiences, coming to college good things happening, but then it's like they hit rock bottom. And and there's various reasons that they hit rock bottom, but they're going through all these different things. So many broken students on this campus, so many hurting students on this campus, just like any campus I've been on, so many broken, hurting, lost, lonely students, students that are really wrapped up in fear, students that are crippled by past mistakes, students that are crippled by things that are going on in their life right now. Students dealing with all kinds of self-image issues and just honestly days where you're like terrified to even step outside your dorm room and go to class. And, And I love having those conversations and hearing those stories because what that has done for me in the past few years, it's opened up the opportunity for me to then turn around and share with those students my story and how the reality is my life is pretty messed up. The reality is, is the Lord has had to do a lot of things in my life and there's things that I'm still asking him, begging him to do and complete in my life. But it's great to hear those stories from you because then I get to turn around and share my story with you and invite you into a relationship with Jesus Christ who has completely changed my story. You know, what's cool now is I mentioned my wife, so I don't know where she went. Uh, oh, she's way up there in the back. Leslie, um, she's right there. If everybody turns and looks, she'll get really mad at me and freak out. Um, But uh, so we got married four months ago. Those of you who, I know a lot of y'all come to Overflow, so you're tired of hearing me say this, but there's some newbies here tonight. Uh, We got married four months ago. And uh, what's cool now is, so we get to do this together and we get to share our story together. And her story is incredible too. She went to UNT, uh, played softball there for four years. um, And during that time, I hope it's okay I'm saying this, she was best friends with Fry Street until uh, she met Jesus Christ. And, And what's cool is now we together get to share our story and how, look, our lives are pretty jacked up. But God in His grace through Jesus has changed us. And um, I, I share that because of this. If you've never been in a setting like this before, or maybe you have, but you're here, and you just don't feel like you belong because of the stuff you know exists in your life, you need to know, and you need to hear, you need to hear me say this. you belong here. I don't know if you've read much about Jesus, but if you spend any time reading about the life of Jesus Christ, you'll notice something. It's almost in every thing that happens. He's always surrounded by people who are broken. He's always surrounded by people who are hurting and lost and lonely, confused, living in fear, diseased, crippled, all these things. And there's two reasons for that. One is those were the type of people that Jesus invited into his life. Those were the type of people that Jesus brought to the table to sit with him. But also the reason that he was always surrounded by those types of people is because those people found healing when they met Jesus Christ. And I share that with you because that's why I'm here tonight. Things haven't changed. That's why so many people that come to Overflow every Tuesday night at 8, just down the street from here, are here. It's because Jesus today still is surrounded by the broken, the hurting, the lost, the people who need to be fixed. And we have realized that Jesus is the only one who really has the ability to fix us. I start there tonight because I want you to know the heart of this ministry, Overflow. That's the heart. We truly believe that Jesus Christ, because God sent him to die on the cross for our sins, is the only one who can really fix our lives like they need to be fixed. Now, that being said, tonight we are continuing a series uh, called Eclipse. It's kind of right there. It's light in here, though, so you can't really see it. It's called Eclipse. We, this is the third week of the series, uh, and it's called Eclipse. What happens when the world gets in the way? Now, there's different kinds of eclipses. There's solar eclipses and lunar eclipses. Um, and specifically, we're looking at the lunar eclipse because in a lunar eclipse. Kind of recap here. Even if you've been here the past couple weeks, I want to recap here. In a lunar eclipse, what happens is the Earth lines itself up perfectly between the sun and the moon to where it blocks out all of the light that would go to the moon. How many of you have seen a lunar eclipse before? A couple of you. Cool. Pay attention to the news for the next one and go out and watch it. It's pretty cool. So. When the earth lines itself up between the sun and the moon, it blocks out all the sunlight, which is crazy when you think about it. Because how many of you in science classes in elementary school learned that the earth is significantly smaller than the sun? Like significantly smaller than the sun, yet it has the ability when it lines up just right to block out all the sunlight to the moon. Here's why we are using this image for this series. I think that image of the lunar eclipse so perfectly describes so many of our relationships with Jesus. When the world gets in the way, when the world gets in between us and Jesus, it blocks out Christ. We're unable to see him. One guy, in talking about some scripture that we've studied already in the past couple weeks, says this. He says, it's amazing how much can be shut out with such a small thing. It's amazing how much can be shut out with such a small thing. Um, So this summer, there was a phenomenon that hit the streets of America and Canada, maybe a few other places. I don't know. Phenomenon called Pokemon Go. Okay, now let me ask, how many of you, and you've got to be honest, you're basically in church, uh, how many of you, you fell captive or you fell prey to this uh, phenomenon? Oh man, that's a lot. Okay, now put your hands down. How many of you just lied and didn't put your hand up because you were afraid what people might say? If, okay, let's see. How many of you? One right there. Okay, maybe. There you go. Thank you for being honest. Yeah. Pokemon Go. So uh, if you don't know anything about Pokemon Go or Pokemon, neither do I, really. Um, I, I, I saw this come out, and I'm not hating on Pokemon people. Is that what you're called? Uh, I know there's like student organization, at least at UNT, maybe here for Pokemon. If that's you, cool. I'm glad you're here. Um, I don't get it. Uh, but I found out one day when I was at church, I, I work at, I'm work. i the college pastor at First Baptist Church, and uh, I found out, did I even introduce myself? My name is Austin Wadlow. I'm the college pastor at First Baptist Church. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I got excited to preach the Bible, man. Um, anyways, uh, so I was at the church this summer when all this kind of started to come out, and, uh, and uh, I was talking with one of our media guys. I won't name his name because I don't want to embarrass uh, Eric Hamilton, who's here tonight, right here in the front <laughs> row. Um, but he was talking about how he had already downloaded Pokemon Go and was really excited about it and had already caught like five or six Pokemon. And uh, then he starts telling me how our, how our church is a Pokemon gym or a gym. I don't know. Uh, and I'm like, Cool. So, I went to the gym thinking something was going on in the gym. Of, we actually have a gym in our church. And uh, there was nothing going on in the gym, or whatever. So, I was like, What is the Poke Gym? And he goes, No, you got to download, download this app. And uh, then he explains the Poke Gym thing. And so, I download this app, and then I see also that our church is a pokey Stop. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Who has no clue what I'm talking about? Okay. So, I'm pretty much an expert now. So, let me explain. A pokey Stop is this place. <laughs> Is this place where you stop, hence the word stop and Pokestop, and uh, it, you, like, on your phone, you, you push it, and it spins, and it, like, throws stuff out. What that stuff is, I don't know, but you click on it as it comes out, and then you get it, and then you're supposed to use it later if you know how to use it, which I didn't. So, anyways, you can go to our church and refuel on things at the Pokestop, and then there's a Gym, and if you're at a certain level in the Pokemon Go game, then you can, like, duel against other Poke, po- Pokemons, Pokethi- whatever. Uh, you can duel against other Pokemons, and uh, like, I don't know what happens after that, honestly. So anyways, I downloaded it that day, and uh, I caught a couple Pokemon, and I was like, okay, uh, I want to catch a few more Pokemon. So I called my wife, and I was, it was like five o'clock, and I was like, hey, babe, I'm gonna be a little bit uh, late um, coming home. I'm gonna drive around town for a little bit, and she goes, why are you gonna drive around town? I was like, don't worry about it, uh, and you know, I'm new to this marriage thing, and she's like, no, for real, why, and she's not like, where are you, where are you gonna be, you know, she's not like that, but, Uh, She kind of pressed a little bit, and I was like, look, I'm going to go catch some Pokemon. I'll talk to you later. Bye. And uh, so I drive around. I'm thinking I'm just going to drive around 10 minutes, catch, you know, five or six Pokemon. An hour later, and about 50 Pokemon later, uh, like I figured out there's a way to, there's like in the neighborhoods around where we live, um, you can like drive just, and I, I shouldn't be admitting this, especially on record, but you can drive slow enough to where you actually don't have to stop to catch the Pokemon. And uh, so I, I was just like kind of these slow drive-bys, boom, Pokemon, speed up, go find another one, boom, Pokemon. Caught like 50 or 60 and um, got to a point where I guess you, you can only fight in a Pokemon gym and uh, like after level. <laughs> yeah, I can like, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. People, come on. So I got to level five and I'm like, sweet, I guess I can fight in a Poke gym. So I picked the yellow team. Is that bad or good? Okay, pick the yellow team. And Pokegyms are pretty much churches. Well, I wasn't very close to First Baptist at that point, so I knew there's a Korean church by my apartments. So I drive by the Korean church, and, I, and sure enough, there's like seven cars in the parking lot. Ironically, none of them Koreans. They're all hipsters with their phones out playing Pokemon Go. And uh, so I pull up, and the weirdest thing happens. I pull up next to this car, and uh, the person in the car, so they're sitting here in the driver's seat, they see me pull up, and then uh, they look at me like this. like mean-mugging me. And I'm like, am I, not, I'm, am I not supposed to be here? Like I wasn't even sure if they were playing Pokemon Go or what. And I'm like, what's going on? And uh, just like mean-mugging me. And then I realized that they had their phone in their hand and they were waiting for somebody to duel. And so I'm in my car and I was like, I, I kind of looked back and when, that's when I realized and I was like. <laughs> and then our windows are up. And so I just kind of motioned, I was like. And uh, so they looked down at their phone and uh, in like five seconds they killed me. And so I just drove off because uh, I didn't know what I was doing. But if you, didn't y'all go down the square this summer when all the Pokemon stuff was like, I mean, was it not ridiculous? Everybody's out with their phones. I was literally, my wife and I in our home group from our church, we were walking around the square one night. And this, this older lady, like, I don't know, older lady, she bumps into me. And uh, she kind of bumps into me, and I kind of do this. And she, she does this, looking at me. She was shorter, so she was, like, looking up. And she has her phone out, and she's playing Pokemon Go. Doesn't even say anything. She just looks at me like, what the heck are you doing? And then goes on playing Pokemon. <laughs> it's really distracting. And so, you know, last night I was, I was looking online because I'd heard that Pokemon Go had caused some wrecks. And so I started Google, car wrecks caused by, and I was going to put in Pokemon Go. Before I could even put in po- Pokemon Go, the first, like, you know how Google fills in auto-search stuff? I got to car wrecks caused by and the first thing that came up was Pokemon Go. So I clicked on it and all these articles pop up and there's one that I read. And and it's crazy. The things like how distracted people are when they play Pokemon Go in New York. It said a man was driving while playing the game when he got distracted, drove off the road. (laughs) That's not funny. Uh, (laughs) Slammed into a tree. He was taken to a hospital with minor injuries. Good for him. He's still alive. Uh, A 15 year old. Pennsylvania girl was hit by a car. Now you're thinking, because somebody was playing Pokemon Go. No. A 15-year-old Pennsylvania girl was hit by a car as she walked onto a busy highway while playing Pokemon Go, paying, paying attention to her phone instead of oncoming traffic. <laughs> the girl <laughs> suffered an injury, an injured collarbone and foot, as well as some bruising. Whatever. Two Canadian police officers. So I guess it's in Canada. Two Canadian police officers were injured when two people backed into their cruiser. The two people reportedly got out from the car and immediately said, I'm sorry, I was just playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> so many accidents caused by this little game. It's amazing. I share. to say this. It's amazing how, how so much can be shut out by an apparently small thing. It's amazing how in an eclipse, a lunar eclipse, the world, which is significantly smaller than the sun, can completely block out the sun. Now week one of this series, the big idea was when the world gets in the way, we miss out on the banquet that God has invited us to, Luke 14, 15 to 24. We miss out on this feast, this party, this eternal kingdom that he's invited all of us to. He saved all of us a seat there. But so many of us, were going to miss out on that because we can't stop looking and staring at the world long enough to see how magnificent and how beautiful and how necessary Jesus Christ is for our lives. Like our attention and our affections have been stolen away by the lesser things of the world. That was the first week. The second week, which was last week, Jesus introduced to us this term disciple. He used it three times. Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, if you want to go back and read it. Three times he says the word disciple. Disciple essentially is, is is a term to describe a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's crazy the stuff that he says in there. Those of you who were here last week, Uh, Luke 14, 26, Jesus says this, and I want to scare newbies off, but he says this. He says, if anyone does not hate his mother, his father, his brothers, his sisters, his wife, and children, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on, verse 27, he says, if anyone does not bear his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, the very last part, he kind of circles back around. He says, look, in the same way, if anyone does not renounce or give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now I'll just tell you, this this text is the text that God used in my life in college to just wreck me. Like I didn't realize until college that I had embraced this watered down version of Jesus and Christianity. Like in our culture, we have redefined what it is to be a normal Christian. We've lowered the bar so much. And last week, as we saw, we started thinking, okay, Jesus says all this in Luke 14, yet, and let me me actually go back. So we've lowered the bar of what it means to be a Christian. In our culture, essentially, what it means to be a Christian or follower of Jesus or disciple is to go to church regularly and read your Bible. That's essentially how we've, whether it's verbally or just in our actions, defined what it is to be a normal Christian. Yet, looking at what Jesus says in Luke 14, what we saw last week, defining the terms of discipleship we started thinking, man, like, I don't have to hate my family to read my Bible. I don't have to bear my cross to go to church on Sundays. I don't have to give up anything, maybe like Netflix or Pokemon Go, to do any of this stuff. So, so why, if that's the case, why would Jesus say what he says in Luke 14, that crazy stuff, if all it is to be a disciple is simply go to church and read your Bible. Like, are you following me? Like last week, here's what Jesus did. In that text, he drew a line in the sand and he said, I'm right here. Who's with me? And he said, look, if you're going to stand on this side of the line with me, you need to know the terms of that. You need to know the terms of following me, of discipleship. He said, you have to love me more than you love anything else in the world to the point that it looks like you hate them. Now, he's not calling us to hate our family, but we should love him so much more than anything else that it looks like we hate everything else. He said, if you want to be on this side of the line with me, then then you've got to bear your cross. You've got to be willing to go to death with me. And then he says, look, if you want to be on this side with me, you've got to be willing to give up everything, if that's what it takes, to follow me where I lead you. Standing in the middle, straddling straddling the line is not an option. Yet, that's what so many of us do. Now, I share all that because that leads into what we're studying tonight. So, Luke chapter 14, open your Bibles. Luke 14, if you've got a Bible and some of you are all thinking, man, why did I come to this? Others of y'all are thinking, man, Austin, you're gonna scare everybody off before we even get a chance to get to know him. Luke 14, beginning of verse 34. I'll give you a second to get there. We're gonna finish out chapter 14 tonight, which good news, it's only two verses. Luke 14, verse 34, listen to this. Jesus says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. And then he says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so again, Jesus is, he's telling a parable, like he did the very first week of the series. He's telling a parable. And a parable is essentially a story that God would use to help explain a bigger, deeper truth. And in parables, uh, the, the people and the objects almost always represent something in that bigger truth. And so in order to really understand a parable, the first thing is we have to understand or try to understand the parable in the same way that they, in this case, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, that's when this took place. We have to try to understand it in the same way that they would have understood it. So, so in this case, we have to try to understand just the basic stuff that Jesus said, just said about salt in the same way that they would have heard and understood it. So first thing he says is what? Salt is good. Everybody, turn to your neighbor and say, "Mm, "Salt is good." Salt is good, right? Like, can I get up? I don't know, amen or something to that. Like, how many of you, when you go, how many of you, when you go to a Mexican food restaurant, first thing you do when they bring out the chips, is you get that salt shaker, you don't even ask people who are sitting at the table. You claim your space. Some of y'all are like, I'm going to be polite. I'll just pour it on half the chips. Yeah, a lot of you do that. I was that punk kid growing up who, after we were finished eating, I would take the salt and unscrew the top and set it on there and leave it for the next person to just ruin their chips with. Anybody else do that? Anyways. Liars. Sinners, that's what you are. Just kidding. Me too. Um. So he says salt is good. Salt can be lo- used for a lot of things. Like for, for you, the main thing you probably use salt for is flavoring your food. But salt can be used for other stuff too, like preserving food. Um, it can be used for melting ice. Uh, it can be used for dissolving snails. Anybody do that as a kid? Uh, yeah. Uh, I learned the hard way because I had this pet snail. Don't ask. I had a pet snail though. And I fed it a saltine cracker not knowing. And I'm looking at it thinking, oh my gosh, what's happening? (laughs) Anyways. In their culture, though, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, salt really had two main uses. One was flavoring food. The other was, was preserving food. Now think about this. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, they didn't have refrigerators. So the main way, one of the main ways at least, that they would preserve their food, preserve their meat from decaying was by using salt. Salt is a way you can, I don't know exactly how to do it, but Take salt, put it on meat, apply it to meat, and it helps slow the process of decay. Salt was a vital part of their culture because of its preserving ability. Today, salt is a vital part of many cultures around the world that don't have, you know, refrigerators and stuff like we do. Um, I've had the opportunity over the past, I don't know, few years to travel a lot. Uh, I've been to four of the five inhabited continents. I've not been to Australia, and then Antarctica doesn't really, really count. Um, but I share that because I've gotten to see a lot of different cultures, been able to experience a lot of different climates and, uh, and, and experiencing a lot of different cultures, you get to taste a lot of different kinds of food. And uh, that's my favorite part of traveling is trying the different. It's also the scariest part of traveling because sometimes you get stuff and you're like, is that even cooked or where did that come from? Or why does it smell that way? Anyways, um, my favorite food in the whole world is, is Indian food, uh, love Indian food. Uh, if you want to get a taste of it, Baurachi, it's just south of UNT's campus over by Rock and Rodeo. You shouldn't know where that is. But uh, anyways, uh, Baurachi is good Indian food. But uh, my, my least favorite food that I've had in my life is from Ethiopia. No offense if anybody in here has the roots in Ethiopia. But, uh, the, and it's ironic too, because the foods are very closely similar, but at the same time, like completely different. I, I just, it was, it was bad. That being said, um, first country that I ever went to outside of North America was in West Africa, a country called Senegal. Y'all, y'all know where Senegal is? Anybody? Okay. Y'all like, yeah, West Africa. You just told us. Um, so I went to Senegal. First first country outside. I'd been to Canada before. Other than that, like America. And so it was like big time culture shock. I mean, for starters, it was blazing hot there. I mean, the top third of the country is in the Sahara Desert. So, I mean, it's hot. Um, but it was just completely different, completely different. Geography it was really, really sandy there. I mean, it went from the United States to one of the poorest countries in West Africa uh, it's a Muslim country, so it was, it was really unique waking up to the call of prayer or being like in the market, and it would be the time for the call of prayer. And uh, everybody would stop what they were doing, and they'd ceremonially wash, and then they would pull out their prayer mats and pray. It was, I'd never been in a setting like that before. Um, cultural greetings were totally different. The dress was totally different. When we went into these different villages, it was like stepping back in time. And, and the food was completely different. They, they, have this, uh, uh, they have this traditional dish there called chebu jin. Chabu Gin, everybody say Chabu Gin. Now you know Senegal, Senegal Senegalese. Uh, Chabu Gin, it's basically like rice and fish. It's actually really good. Um, but we were there for about a month and we spent about three weeks of that month out in these pretty relatively remote villages, like Stepping Back in Time. And for like two of those weeks straight, we had nothing but chebu Gin. And rice and fish, especially this particular kind of fish, gets pretty old after a while. There was one time we were like, oh, sweet. We could tell by the, the dish. Chabu Gin is served in a big saucer and uh there's just a, a whole fish like it's actually like that was obviously a fish kind of still is a fish laying on on top of all the rice with like a piece of carrot and then you just you don't have utensils you just sit and all eat with your hand your right hand your left hand your poop hand uh, you eat with your right hand and uh sorry that's weird i said that um you eat with your right hand everybody out of the same saucer and uh so we had chubby gin for like every meal until we were, we were excited. We saw this one meal come out that was not in a saucer. So we knew it wasn't chubby gin. We're thinking sweet, something different for our taste buds. They open it. It was like 10,000 times worse. But anyways, chubby gin, they would put fish on it called yalboy, Basically like cowboy, but with a, with a Y. It's called yalboy. There'd be people walking down the street with these big carts piled with this fish called yalboy. And I'm looking at those carts thinking, that's not refrigerated. And I'm pretty sure I ate one of those last night. So how in the world am I not sick? The reason I didn't get sick is because they preserved their fish with salt. Now, here's why I share this. Looking at Luke 14, 35, and Jesus says salt is good. They're not thinking, "Mm, yeah, that's the stuff I put on my chips and salsa when I go to El Guapo's. Sad day, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, They're thinking that's a crucial part of our society. Like that's what we use uh, to preserve our meat. So he says salt is good. But, you look on, it says, but, now I'll pause here for a second. If you've been in this ministry for any period of time, you've heard me say this. But is like the, sol- is like the stop sign of Scripture. Uh, it's one of the smallest words in the English dictionary, but it's had one of the greatest impacts on all of history. Romans 6.23 says, for the wage of sin is death, but, change pace, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But's like a stop sign. When you get to a stop sign, what are you supposed to do? stop, look both ways, and then go. Same is true in Scripture. When you get to the word but, slam on the brakes. Don't treat it like you really treat stop signs in real life. You just kind of roll up, make sure there's no cops, slow down a little bit, roll through. See, if you do that, it's dangerous in real life. You can get broadsided by a car. If you do that when you're reading Scripture, you don't stop at this stop sign and look both ways, see what's happening here, see where the traffic is going, then you could literally die. You could miss out on some of the most crucial truths that, that Scripture presents to us. So he says, salt is good But, slam on the brakes, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So for the most part, based on the research that I could find, it's pretty much impossible for salt to lose its saltiness, except in a couple of rare cases. There's a couple of rare cases around the world where people get salt from, one of those being the Dead Sea in the Middle East, which is very close to where Jesus was when this is going down. There's a couple of rare places where salt, because it's mixed with all these other impurities, there is a chemical reaction that can happen over time that will remove the saltiness from the salt. And when that happens, it essentially, the salt not only becomes useless, but can become harmful to the environment. Therefore, it has to be disposed properly. So again, this is a parable. Jesus isn't just going off on a tangent about salt. So in parables, you've got to ask the question, who's who and what's what? And you find the answers to those questions by looking at three things. One, the content of the parable, the context in which it falls within Scripture, and then looking at the commentary of other places in Scripture that talk about it. So let's look at the content. From the parable itself, you really don't learn much about what Jesus is trying to communicate here what the bigger truth is just by looking at these two verses. You don't get much from the content. But if you look at the context, you start to see a whole lot more. I mean, last week we saw the verses right before this. And leading into this, he says, here's the terms of discipleship. You've got to love me more than you love anything else. Bear your cross, follow me. Be willing to give up everything. But on top of that, he also says in 14 verses 20, 28 to 32, he says, this is why I've come. I have come, or he says, this is why the bar for discipleship is set so high. He says it's set so high because I'm here to build my kingdom and battle for the hearts of mankind. And joining Jesus in a building project of that size is really costly. Going to battle, if any of you have ever served in the military, it's risky. You could lose your life. So, contextually speaking, we have an idea of what he's talking about based off of that. Now, commentary from other parts of the Bible. There is some helpful commentary. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You ever heard that before? He says, you are the salt of the earth. Actually, a better translation in the Greek, the word you is plural, so it's really y'all are the salt of the earth. He says, y'all are the salt of the earth. So in that moment, he was speaking to people who embodied the qualities of a true follower of him. So in this parable about salt, the salt represents followers of Jesus. The salt represents true disciples. The salt represents true Christians. So here's the main point Jesus' followers need to be salty. And not only do they need to be salty, they need to stay salty. Turn to your neighbor and say, You salty? Let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. Jesus' followers, his disciples, what he's saying in this is his followers, his disciples, must contain the characteristics of discipleship that he just mentioned. Or they are of no use to the work that he's trying to accomplish on earth. Coming right out of Luke 14, 25 to 33, what Jesus is saying when he shares this parable about salt, he's saying if you don't have this wholehearted devotion to following me, then you are of no use in helping me build my kingdom and battle for the hearts of mankind. This wrecked my life in college. Now the argument I want to make tonight is this. Our American culture is experiencing the rapid moral and spiritual decay that it is because we, those who claim to know and follow Jesus, have lost our saltiness. The world has gotten in the way of us and Jesus, and we've therefore embraced this watered down, diluted, less potent version of Christianity that if we're honest isn't really Christianity at all, and therefore does not have the salt-like ability to flavor and preserve That's why when we read something like Luke 14, 25 to 33, where he says, you got to hate your family if you want to follow me, it sounds crazy. That's why that comes as a shock to our system. We've got to love Jesus that much in order to be able to really be a disciple of Jesus. A.W. Tozer, he's this pastor from a long time ago, he said this. So, said, what kind of Christian should be considered a normal Christian? That question deserves more discussion than it currently is arousing. Some people claim to be normal Christians when actually they mean they're nominal Christians. My old dictionary, he says, gives this definition as one of the meanings of nominal. Existing in name only. Not real. Not actual. Hence, so small, slight, or the like, as to be hardly worth the name. And then he goes on to say, with that as a definition, those who know they are Christians in name only should never make the pretension of being Normal Christians? Is the Lord Jesus Christ your most precious treasure in the world? If so, you can count yourself among normal Christians. Is the moral beauty, which is found only in Jesus Christ, constantly drawing you to praise and worship? If so, you are indeed among those whom God's Word identifies as normal, believing, practicing Christians. But then he says this I can almost anticipate an objection. If someone is is delighted and that occupied with the person of Jesus Christ, is he or she not extremist rather than a normal Christian? And then he says, have professing Christians really come to that time, their humanistic and secularistic learnings, that they can sincerely deny that loving Jesus Christ with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength is normal Christianity? And then he says this, and this is, I think, what hits home so hard. We must not be reading and studying the Bible. And he says that because, look, where Jesus says this crazy stuff in Luke 14, that's not an isolated event. He says this stuff all over the place. Watered-down Christianity is not partially effective. It's totally, completely ineffective. So the question is, how do we change that? And, and, and there's two natural questions that should occur as we read this parable about salt. I mean, if salt is good and if salt that has lost its saltiness is worthless, then the first question we should ask is, how is salt produced? Because if salt is good, then how do we get more of it? Because we want more of what is good. That's the first question. How is salt produced? Second question is, how is salt preserved? If salt that loses its saltiness is worthless, then how do we keep it from losing its saltiness? And this is, this is where I think the parable gets interesting. Maybe, for me it did. Maybe you're gonna be like, bro, I don't even see where you're going with this. Let me ask you this, by raise of hands, how many of you know how salt is made? I think I saw three, four hesitant hands. That's about what I expected. I'll be honest, I didn't really know how salt was made. So I, I, I did a little research this week. Actually, going back to Senegal, West Africa. So while there, we flew into the capital city, Dakar. Dakar's right on the coast. And I kind of already shared a little bit about this, but me and one other guy, we were there to partner with a dude who'd been living there for about two years, researching an unreached people group called the Kanyagi people. Everybody say, Kanyagi. That is an unreached people group in West Africa. He'd been trying to find where they were, and and so we were basically going to join him in going to these villages to add a little bit to the long-term work that they had been working on. So we went to a few villages, and, and on the way out to these villages, we had to drive pretty far outside of Dakar. We go through a city called Kalak. Kalak, in Wolof, the nation, the nas- the national, one of the national languages there, Kallak means the gates of hell. We were about to drive through Kalak, and our translator turns to us and says, We must pray. He's like, Why should we pray? He's like, We must pray because we're going through Kalak. I'm like, Why do we need to pray because we're going through Kalak? Uh, maybe we shouldn't go through Kalak, And uh, he's like, we must pray because Kalak means gates of hell. And I'm like, why are we going through the gates of hell? (laughs) Let's go somewhere else. And he goes, it's called gates of hell because the climate changes significantly. So it goes from a coastal climate where it was maybe like 80 or 90 to a not coastal climate, more Sahara climate of hardly dropping below 100 degrees. So it's going to get really hot. So we prayed. But before we got to Kalak, we drove through uh, this area called the Fatigue Salt Plains. Here's what's interesting about Senegal. Senegal is the number one producer of salt in West Africa. Every year they produce somewhere in the ballpark of 450,000 tons of salt. They're known for this pink lake they have right on the coast. It's a saltwater pink lake. You're shaking your head because you've heard about it maybe. Pink lake, it it's, looks pink. Literally, it's very pink. You can look it up. Pink lake, Senegal. Google it. And uh, not right now. Uh, and it looks pink because the salt that's in the water and the way the sun hits the water. That's their main source of the salt. But there's other main sources or big sources. And one of them is the fatigue salt plains, which we drove by. I remember seeing and then pointing out these salt plains. Now, here's how this works. Here's how they get salt from these salt plains. Basically, they would pump water from this saltwater river that was nearby into these little, like in the dirt, they would kind of dig out, honestly, about the size of this stage a little area that wasn't even as deep as this, as this stage, a little, a little area, almost formed like a, a water bed. a little bed, they'd fill it with water. And, uh, and, and then they would take that salt water and the men and women that worked at the, fatig- the fatigue salt fields would labor, like hours a day working the salt water, working that water bed, creating a condition that was just right for salt crystals to form. This was a labor intensive thing. When you do research on it, you see that a lot, labor intensive, it's not a process that can be rushed. But after they worked everything to create the right conditions, there's one more super crucial thing that has to happen in order for salt to be produced. And that is, and you've got to hear this, the salt had to be separated from the water and from its impurities. Now, y'all been in some science classes? How does that happen? Yeah, how do you separate salt from water? You evaporate it. And how do you evaporate water? How do you think in Senegal they evaporated water? Huh? Thank you, the sun. They let it sit out under the sun. That's the main part of the process of separating the impurities from the salt and the water from the salt so that you get the salt. That's the key part of the salt-making process. Now, what's this series called? Eclipse. Not just eclipse, it's called eclipse. What happens when the world gets in the way? So what do you think is the biggest thing that can hinder the salt making process in Senegal, not just Senegal, but all over the world where salt's being harvested? Things getting in the way of the sun. The biggest hindrance to the salt making process is when something gets in the way of the sun. When the world gets in the way in a lunar eclipse, it blocks out the sun. When the world gets in the way of our lives, it blocks out the sun. Jesus Christ from doing the work in our lives that he wants to do. So how do we change the watered down version of Christianity that's embraced in our culture? Like, how do we produce disciples of Jesus that bring out the flavor and effectively preserve the spiritual and moral climate of our culture? The answer is found in how we produce salt. Is that thunder? Sweet. God's about to speak, baby. The answer is found in how we produce salt. There's two key parts of the salt-making process. One is this. Men and women working these salt plains, spending hours laboring. Like I said over there, doing different things to create the right conditions for the salt crystals to form. The second key part of the salt making process is you have to get the salt separated from the water and its impurities by letting it sit out under the powerful, purifying heat of the sun. Are you with me? In the same way, there's two key parts of the disciple making process. One is there has to be men and women willing to come alongside people who God is working on to turn followers, to turn them into followers of Jesus laboring alongside them, doing whatever they can to create the right conditions for Jesus to to work in their lives, praying for God to create in them these salty discipleship qualities, showing these people how to follow Jesus and doing whatever they can to put these people in a place where they're most exposed to the power of the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the first part of the disciple-making process. The second part is, the second key part is, we need to do whatever we can to place ourselves under the powerful, sanctifying heat of the Son, Jesus. He is ultimately the only one capable of changing our hearts and removing what is impure. That's called discipleship. The reason our American culture is experiencing such rapid, moral, spiritual decay is because our churches have abandoned the salt-making process. It's because we have abandoned the disciple-making process. We've traded discipleship in, which is a time-proven method of the church, time-proven method that Jesus himself used. We've traded in discipleship for fancy, flashy concerts that we call worship gatherings. We've traded in discipleship for cheap, shallow church or ministry growth methods that don't create change over the long haul. We've traded in discipleship for so many other lesser methods that have ultimately led to this lack of saltiness among Christians today. Listen, nothing has had a greater impact on my life than when in college, three men came to me intentionally, took me under their wing, and showed me how to follow Jesus, discipled me. Nothing will have a greater impact on your life then if you have someone older and further along, more mature in their faith than you, disciple you, show you how to follow Jesus, nothing will have a bigger impact on this campus, on UNT's campus, on NCTC's campus, than discipleship. So, there's two types of responses that need to happen in here tonight. Two types of responses. First response is this. Some of you, in fact, many of you, are in desperate need of being discipled. Are y'all with me? Some of you, many of you, are in desperate need of having somebody older, wiser, more mature in their faith in Christ take you under their wing and show you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Show you how to study Scripture. And so some of you need to Pursue that. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. If that's you, and it's many of you, if that's you, I want to challenge you to, I think the earlier they talked about on our website, overflowdenton.org. you go to that front page, scroll to the bottom, there's this button that says connect with us. If that's you and you want to, if like you're, you're, you're here thinking this, okay, I want to be discipled. I, want to have, I need somebody to pour into my life, show me how to follow Jesus, help me to become salty, If that's you, I want you to go click on that link, connect with us. And then I want you to just put your name. I know you may have already filled it out tonight. That's okay. Fill it out again. And in the part that it says, how'd you find out about the ministry? Just say, I want to be discipled. Listen, we have upperclassmen students in our ministry who are equipped and trained and ready to do this for you. We have men and women from our church who are equipped and ready and trained to do this for you. We want to help you be discipled. Here's the second response that needs to happen in this space tonight. The second is some of you some of you need to step up and see your responsibility to disciple others. If that's you, then you need to just get after it. You know, salt is only good if it's applied. It's worthless if it's just sitting in the salt shaker. Somebody needs to shake you out of the salt shaker and apply you to culture. Consider this the moment where I'm trying to shake you out of the salt shaker. It's just rain, people. Apply. Hear me. Look here. Eyes here. Eyes here. Focus. Come on. Right here. We're almost done. I think it's just rain. It's not like a tornado or something, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's just water, people. That won't hurt. Okay. Eyes here. Eyes here. Let me get you back. We're almost done. Consider this the moment where I am trying to shake that salt shaker and move you into action to disciple others. Ultimately, the big question we got to ask of ourselves is, am I salty? Are you salty? Look, the only way that salt can lose its saltiness is if that salt-making process wasn't a good process and it never got the impurities out in the beginning. So if we can just get the salt-making process right, then the issue of will you ever lose your saltiness isn't even an issue. It's a non-issue. So, one, some of you need to be discipled. Pursue it. I've shown you how to do that. Two, some of y'all need to be shaking out of the salt shaker and disciple others. And all of us need to ask the question, am I salty? Y'all got it? Okay, let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.